Well, good morning, everybody, and a special good morning to everybody at Calvary Quakertown and to those of you joining us online. It's great to be with you this morning. You were reminded in the video that we're in a series that we're calling Out for Delivery. And just to make sure we're kind of tracking together, be honest, how many of you ordered something online this past week? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you track something online to see where it was or when it's going to arrive? Okay. That's kind of the thought behind the series. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout history, God has been promising that the fulfillment of hope would come. The rescue would come, but people waited and waited. And in the ancient world, there was no way for them to check up on it, no way for them to know when it was going to happen. But God kept giving reminders, kind of signposts along the highway of life, when it would come, how it would be delivered. And that's what we're doing in the month of November. We're trying to look at some of those characters from the Old Testament that help us point to Christmas, point to the delivery of God's gift that comes and we celebrate the end of December. But what are some signposts ahead of time to tell us about what's coming so that we can understand it a little better? If you were here last week, we looked at Adam, the very beginning of the story, and said, you know what? We can learn some things about Christmas by looking at Adam that we really can't learn if you just look at Christmas. Well, this morning, we're gonna do another one of those, not in Genesis. We're gonna jump ahead a few books and we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Ruth. Only four chapters long, a great story. Uh, I hope you have read it. If not, you can kind of read it this afternoon. And our goal this morning is to redeem Ruth. And so Ruth really is a great story of commitment and faithfulness and discipline and stick to and all that stuff. And it's a wonderful story about those things. But Ruth is more than that. Ruth is also one of the signs along the road that leads us to Christmas. So here's a little bit of an assignment for you. For the next few minutes, as we talk about Ruth, the situation, the adventure, the results, I want you to think about Christmas connections. Can you, we don't have time to tease them all out. You think about some, and at the end, I'll mention a few others. Well, we're gonna start by looking at the situation. What's the situation? Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ruth or on your phone, your tablet somewhere, turn to the book of Ruth. And the book begins with these words. In the days when the judges ruled. Let's stop there. In the days when the judges ruled. What was life like when the judges ruled? Let me tell you, it was nasty. That's what it was like. In fact, there was no central leadership. The local leadership was basically corrupt. There was lots of exploitation, tribalism, selfishness running rampant. Life was miserable. Aren't you glad all that's behind us now? We don't live with any of that today. <laughs> that was what life was like. Everybody in it for him or herself. Everybody in it for their family. Everybody in it for their tribe. Not caring what happens to anybody else. That was what life was like. In fact, there's a phrase that's repeated in the book of Judges, which appears right before Ruth, to describe that whole scene. And here was the phrase. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Imagine what life would have been like. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And you can bet what was right in their eyes was what was good for them from their perspective, even if that meant backstabbing, exploiting, kind of ripping on you. That's what life was like back then. Some things never change, right? In the time of the judges. Oh, but let's keep reading. It gets worse. It's kind of like a spiral going down. So in the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons went down to live for a while in the country of Moab. 
Now we're gonna learn in a little bit. That man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And his two sons were named Malan and Kilian. Now think about this for a little bit. Elimelech and his family live in Bethlehem, but there's a famine, nothing to eat. Now, if you know what Bethlehem means, you recognize the irony of that. The word Bethlehem actually means house of bread. So it's almost as if the writer of Ruth's kind of making a joke. There's no bread in the house of bread, so you have to leave the house of bread to go find bread. And when you're outside the house of bread, there's no bread. That, that's the whole point. It's almost kind of a, an ironic, critical way of examining what's going on. There's no bread in the house of bread. Think of how desperate life must have been for Elimelech and his family. They leave Bethlehem because there's a famine, nothing to eat. But rather than going somewhere else in Israel, somewhere else in the promised land, they leave the promised land. They cross the Jordan River into kind of enemy territory and they go to Moab. It isn't just Moab's a neighboring country where people, you know, kind of look down their noses at Israel. The Moabites and the Israelites had constant friction. And that friction dates all the way, all the way back to Abraham and Lot. So let me tell you a really kind of sad story. Abraham had a nephew named Lot, and they kind of entered the promised land together, and God blessed them both greatly. Their flocks and all their possessions began to accumulate. And pretty much the men that worked for them, the shepherds and stuff, they began to fight against each other. So Abraham says, hey, Lot, look, I really enjoy being with you. It's kind of a big family deal. Here we are in the land God promised, but a lot of friction between us. I'll tell you what, you go right, I'll go left. I'll go left, you go right, but we can no longer be together. So Lot and Abraham separate. And you know how Lot's life kind of spirals down. He moves into uh, one of the cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and then God delivers Lot. Lot's wife is judged and she's killed on the way out. And eventually, Lot, through an incestuous relationship with one of his daughters, has a son. And that son's name is Moab. So you can bet the Israelites are looking down their nose at all the Moabites because they come from Lot's illegitimate, incestuous kid. And you can bet the Moabites feel that judgment and they kind of hate the Israelites for looking down on them and disrespecting them. And when the Israelites are making their way out of Egypt to go to the promised land, the Moabites curse them, look down their noses at them, then fight with them, bicker with them, hire people to come and pronounce curses on them. Lots of friction. It's not a neutral neighboring country. Lots of hostility and venom between these two groups. I tell you that only to say, when Elimelech takes his wife and his two sons from Bethlehem in the promised land, across the Jordan to Moab, he's not only moving a distance, he's moving into what is gonna be perceived by people in Israel as fraternizing with the enemy and going over to the enemy's side. Pretty desperate situation. Well, not just that, it gets worse than it. You're thinking, boy, that's pretty bad. Oh, it gets worse. Here are a couple other verses to show you. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. It's a good happy chapter we're looking at today, right? 
And so it starts within the days of Judges when there was selfishness and exploitation and corruption. Then all of a sudden there's a famine on top of that. And then there's a, fun a funeral. No sooner does Elimelech take the family out of the house of bread, moves over to Moab, enemy territory. And then once he gets there, he dies. Now Naomi has two sons living in Moab. What's, life's going to be, what's life going to be like there? It's going to be horrendous. And the writer of Ruth wants you to feel that pain. Oh, it even gets worse. The two sons marry Moabite women. I don't know how Naomi kind of looked at that, but I'm guessing, uh, if anything, that was at least bittersweet, maybe worse than that. But like any mother, Naomi's probably hoping for grandkids at least, right? You know, Elimelech's not around. I really miss him. A place in my heart, you know, is empty. But if I had a couple grandkids, um, maybe things would get better. So let's read it, what happens to the grandkids. They marry Moabite women. One of them was named Orpah and the other Ruth. So that's where the book gets its name. After they had lived there about 10 years, look at this, both Malan and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Talk about a spiral down into the pit of despair and brokenheartedness. Elimelech and Naomi take the family, move to enemy territory in Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem. They get there, Elimelech dies. The two kids, the two boys, they marry Moabite women. We're not sure what people thought of that. Before they have kids, before Naomi has any grandkids, both the sons die. Now Naomi is living in Moab in a country that's not hers, in a culture she doesn't understand, living among people that, if anything, kind of disdain and disrespect God. And now she's got two daughters-in-law and no men in her life. In a very patriarchal culture, it doesn't get much worse than that. In fact, when Naomi returns to the house of bread, here's what she says. Don't call me Naomi. The word Naomi means sweet. Don't call me sweet. Call me Mara, bitterness, because God has given me a bitter life rather than a sweet life. But that's just a little description of what she must be feeling inside. Don't call me sweetness. Life's not sweet. Call me bitterness because God called me up short and delivered nothing but pain and hunger and brokenheartedness to me. That's the situation. How are you thinking about that story? But you know, one thing you have to admit the Bible always rings true to life, doesn't it? The book of Ruth is full of twists and turns, valleys and mountains, dead ends and back roads, deceit and robbers, and all kinds of mess. Isn't that where we live, though? If we were just to interview people this morning, we would have to admit our lives are not highways that we get on and the destination's marked out clearly before us and we just kind of hit the gas and God delivers that end goal to us exactly the way we want and that's what he gives us and life's great. Life's not like that. Life's more like the back roads with twists and turns in which you scratch your head and don't know what God's doing. And then there's pain and there's heartache and maybe you run out of gas and you lose some family members along the way and just like Jason said earlier, you wonder, is God on the throne? Does God know what he's doing? Or does he hate me so much? I get nothing but pain and misery. Don't call me sweet. Call me bitter because God's given me nothing but bitterness and a mess in this life. That's the situation. But out of this situation, an adventure begins to bubble up. 
And the adventure is going to involve Ruth and Naomi, at least to start. So here's what happens. Eventually, word filters down to Moab, just like people talk today. (laughs) People talk back then. Word begins to filter down to Moab that once again, there's bread in the house of bread. Once again, you can eat in Bethlehem. They're doing harvesting again up there. Bethlehem is beginning to plant and to harvest and life is getting better. The famine's over. So Naomi comes up with a plan. I'm leaving this place. I'm going back to my country. I'm going back to my people. I'm going back to my culture where God is honored and respected and people worship him. I'm leaving this and I'm going to that. So she does what any loving mother-in-law would do. She bids the two daughters-in-law farewell. Go home, girls. See ya. She doesn't do that because she dislikes them. She does that because she loves them. Here's what she knows. If they would return to their family, remember, they're young girls. If they would return to their families, their parents are still alive and they would take care of them. They're young enough. They may find other men that they could marry and they will have a life. Their people live there. Their religion is there. Their culture is there. Don't go back with me where you will live this miserable life I'm living. You go home to your parents. I'll go back to my culture and I'll live a destitute life there alone. Well, Orpah kind of does the normal thing. She says, see you, mom, headed home. And Orpah goes back. But Ruth doesn't. Here's, what, uh, here's how that scene happens. Ruth replied to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and be buried. May the Lord be with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. I'm not sure if you've ever heard my, my guesses, you've heard those verses. Often those verses are read at weddings and it's kind of fitting, right? You're giving a lifelong commitment. Your people, my people, you're God. But I've never heard the guy doing the wedding explain the context. I'm often tempted to do that. You want me to read Ruth? Great. So let's talk about the time of the judges. Let's talk about famines. Let's talk about funerals because that's what married life's going to be like. Now, that never happens at the wedding, but that is the context of, and you know, it's not in the good times that faithfulness and commitment really get tested, right? It's in the hard times. And so Ruth says, in a sense, I'm going to leave and give up my life so you, Naomi, can have a life. Isn't that weird? In a sense, Ruth gives up her life. She gives up her family. She gives up her religion. She gives up her culture. She gives up her network. And she says, you know what, Naomi? I really love you. I will give up my life so you can have a life. And here's the real truth of it. If Ruth returns home and has a life, Naomi loses her life. She goes home to a widow probably she goes home as a widow to the judgment and condemnation of all the people in Bethlehem. And maybe some of them, those self-righteous folks would have said, yeah, you never should have left. That's right. Judgment of God on you guys. You were in Bethlehem. You were in the promised land and you wrote God off. And so he wrote you guys off. You're coming back, but you have a black spot on your life and nobody's going to help you because you've disobeyed God and you've run from him. Maybe she would have had words like that. So Ruth says, I'll give up my life, Naomi, so you can have a life. You know what those verses remind me of? They're up on the screen. Love sticks. Ever notice that? 
love sticks. Let me give you a, just an example that many of you know exactly what I'm saying. Some of you parents have kids and their lives are off the rails and it seems like you've done nothing but pay their bills, whether it be emotionally, financially, relationally, over, legally, over and over and over again. You want to know why you did it? Love sticks. That's why. Love sticks. Love doesn't walk out the door when the going gets tough. Love sticks. And so Ruth loves her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she says, you know what? Love sticks. And if that means I give up my life so you can have a life, farewell life, I'm going back with you. Love also risks. It's a big risk. I mean, we read the end of the book and we know how the story ends. Ruth didn't know how it was going to end. Ruth didn't know when she got back if she would have been beaten and mistreated. She didn't, maybe that could have happened. That would have been normal in that day. Love risks. It not only sticks, but it sticks even when the price is being paid, even when the costs begin to mount up. Love sticks and love costs. Well, eventually they go back. Ruth becomes the breadwinner for Naomi and for herself. They had a little custom back then. It was called gleaning. And remember, there was no welfare, there was no food stamps, none of those social safety net kind of systems. Here's what God said. All of you people that own land and you kind of you know, plant on the land and you grow stuff on the land, you are not allowed to meticulously harvest all the crops. For example, you can't go back over the field again and again and again, getting every last kernel of grain out of the field. You can't do that. You go through the field once and you do it as much as you can. You do it as carefully as you can. But whatever's left, leave it there. And the people that don't have anything, they may have lost their land or never had land. They may not have any financial resources to buy anything. They can come into the fields that have already been harvested and they can glean, they can pick up whatever's left and maybe they're able to gather enough to at least survive another day. That's what Ruth begins to do. She goes back with Naomi and she goes out into the field and she's picking up the scraps that are left behind the harvesters. And she's thinking, maybe I'll accumulate enough grain, enough kernels of stuff that I'll be able to eat, Naomi will be able to eat. And if this is how we're gonna survive, this is it. I'm I'm willing to pay the price. Well, eventually she uh, shows up in a field owned by Boaz. And he had another cultural thing after. I think we have a Boaz slide here. Here we go. Naomi says, he has, God has not stopped, shot, stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man whose field you've been gleaning in is our close relative. He is our guardian redeemer. If you have an older translation, it would say kinsman redeemer. Now, I, now, when you say the word redeemer and you're in church, you automatically think of like salvation and stuff. Uh, the word redemption and redeemer, that's just a financial deal. It's a financial term. And here's what it meant. In that world, if either through illness or stupidity, your family happened to lose its property um, because you had to sell it in order to get money to survive, a family member, someone related to you, could buy back your land. They could redeem it. Just like when you redeem stock or you redeem it, you give it in, you get something back. A relative can pay your debt and that land comes back to you. So as the story unfolds, Boaz eventually says, yeah, I'll I'll redeem the property. Now, the story makes perfect sense. Before Elimelech and uh, Naomi left, they probably tried everything they could to survive in the famine. 
So they sold their property to get money. But eventually the money that they got for the property, they ate that too and they had nothing left, so they had to leave. When Naomi comes back with Ruth, they have no more property. Whoever bought it still owns it. Why would Boaz ever want to buy that land back? After all, if he buys it back, it's not his. It's going to go into Naomi's. And here's the really nasty part. If you're going to redeem the land, you have to marry Ruth. A Moabite. You want a Moabite wife? You want to have kids with a Moabite? Uh, Remember, look down your nose, all that nasty cursing stuff. So Boaz has a big decision to make. Well, to make a long story short, Boaz redeems the land. He purchases the land. He marries Ruth and eventually gives Naomi a grandchild and Ruth a child. Because, just like I said, love sticks. So Boaz stuck with Ruth, just like Ruth stuck with Naomi. Love risks, just like Ruth risked to come back with Naomi. So Boaz risks to stick with Ruth. But love transforms. Ruth's love for Naomi transforms their relationship. And there's a book in the Bible where we read this story. And the love of Boaz transforms Ruth in the relationship. And the love of Ruth transforms Boaz. And so Boaz would have been a no no name. We know his name because of Ruth and because of his association with her and the son that they have together. So let me just uh, share with you a little bit of the result. Uh, Here's the result. If you turn all the way to the end of Ruth, it ends with the genealogy. I think, Charles, this is boring and it's getting worse. Now just hang in there. Put your seatbelt on. Let me just read you a few lines of the genealogy that I think will put a smile on your face. Salmon was the father of Boaz, and Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed is the son that he has with Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David. You know that name. David, yeah, the shepherd, the guy that wrote the songs, the guy that tended sheep in Bethlehem. David, the one that clearly, um, the Bible tells us, has a heart like God's. And David, who becomes the clearest Old Testament picture of what the ultimate king will be, that David. Think about how weird that is. David's great-grandmother is a Moabite. David's great-grandfather married a Moabite and he redeemed the land and Naomi is kind of given a grandson and Ruth and Boaz have a kid and and the great-grandson is King David. That's pretty cool, right? Oh, it gets better than that. Ruth is also kind of a Christmas story. Not sure you realize this, but the New Testament begins in maybe the weirdest way imaginable. You know, if, if I was going to write the New Testament, thank God I didn't, but if I'm going to write the New Testament, I would have begin it any way other than the way it begins. Do you know how the New Testament begins? When you turn from the last chapter in Malachi to the first chapter in Matthew, do you know what you find? A genealogy. Oh, bore me to death. I mean, if you want somebody to read the rest of the book, do you begin with a list of names? And so here, here's a challenge. You go home this afternoon and you read through Matthew. And next week, tell me if you made it through without falling asleep. Names we can't pronounce about people we don't know. A long list of names. But Matthew says, uh, yeah, but you guys all the way over there in the 21st century, you don't understand. In your day, 
your resume is a list of your accomplishments. Isn't that right? So when you, when you want a job, when you want to open the door in front of you, you write your resume and you highlight all of your um, accomplishments, all of the things that you're proud of. You don't write about the courses you flunked, right? You don't write about all the things you screwed up and the jobs you got fired from. You write all the good things in your resume, all, where you graduated from. If you had a good GPA, you include that. If you didn't, you don't include that. The jobs you had, all of the goals that were accomplished. Our resumes are comprised of our accomplishments. In the ancient world, you didn't write a resume of your accomplishments. In the ancient world, your resume was your genealogy. And in other, in other words, it didn't matter what, you, what you've done, it matters who you're related to. That's what's most, that's still true in some cultures today. So as you begin the New Testament, as Matthew begins to tell us about Christmas, because Matthew's one of the gospels which we find in nativity, here's a section from Matthew chapter one. Now, some of this is going to sound familiar because we just read it from Luke four, but this is Matthew now. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. A Moabite is in the genealogy that begins the New Testament. In the Christmas genealogy of Jesus, there's Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife, and then jumped down toward the end of the chapter. And Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Isn't that just like God? To include a Moabite, an outcast, Someone who everybody else looked down on, right in Jesus' genealogy. There she is. And there are some important Christmas lessons that aren't just about redemption being found in Bethlehem then, because they had to go back to Bethlehem in order to find redemption. Just like in our world, you got to start in Bethlehem if you're going to find redemption. That's what Christmas is about. Let me give you a couple of simple Christmas lessons, and maybe you can think of others. Here's the first one. God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary. And people in our world hate that. Let me uh, explain it this way. When you read through those four chapters of Ruth, and it really is a great read. It's a great story. Twists and turns at the end of every chapter, the middle of every chapter. But here's what you'll read. No miracles in Ruth, not a single miracle. No dreams that God gives. No visions are in there. There are, no tr- there are no dramatic answers to prayer, no direct revelation at all in Ruth. When you read Ruth, it's nothing but ordinary, right? Here's a family, and they're living in a town, and there's a famine, and so the family has a great idea. They're going to move away to find bread, and they go, and dad dies, and then the boys die, but they're married to Moabite. I mean, it's just kind of the normal whoop, warp and wolf of life, right? Nothing extraordinary in that. But in our day and age, everything has to be extraordinary, right? I'll give you two examples, and I'm not critiquing any of you. I'll just give you two examples. Everything in our world has to be extraordinary, or at least people think it has to be. But the message of the Bible is God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary, not the extraordinary. Here's one. You ever go to your kids or your grandkids or your friends' preschool or elementary school concerts? Yeah, those were funny laughters, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's not the, con- and you got to remember, a lot of those concerts, when I went, my name is Zimmerman. 
I had to sit through all the other kids playing before I got to my kids playing, right? So I've been, I've been in those seats. I was all, I'm always kind of amazed when you're leaving, you hear parents or family members say things like this. The musical acumen of those kids, the skill on the instruments, the musical selections, this was amazing. It wasn't amazing, it was awful, <laughs> right? I mean, why are you lying to the kids? It was not good. Um, now again, thankfully, some of the kids will become musicians and they're learning and that's a wonderful thing and they're learning discipline and notes and scales and all that, but it wasn't awesome. It was awful. And so sometimes, but we make it awesome. Here's the other, here's another time that happens. You ever go to a commencement, high school or college commencement? I always kind of scratch my head when the speaker gets up and she says something like this. I have never stood before such a class of skill expertise, intellect that I am. There are kids. We know you're lying, right? Uh, they don't have super intellect. They don't, this, they're not going to change the world. They're ordinary. But there's great pride, and we need to be proud of being ordinary because God loves to do the extraordinary in the ordinary. I'm glad I get that point this morning because as I look around, I don't see too much extraordinary here. I see a whole lot of ordinary. The good news is God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary so that he gets highlighted and his plan and what he accomplishes takes center stage, not what we do and what we accomplish. And isn't it just that way at Christmas? So we have a young couple that's really poor and they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because the emperor said, oh, I want more taxes. So he traveled down. And my guess is there were lots of complaining on the way from Nazareth to Bethlehem. You know, you don't read that in the Bible. I'm guessing there were a lot of complaints going down on that trip. And they arrive and hard times are there because there's no room for them to stay and they have to deliver the baby in the stable. Now imagine what that must have been like, right? We sanitize that and make that a glorious event with lots of, that was miserable, Right? Nothing but ordinary, normal poverty, normal travel, normal routines. But an extraordinary event occurs when the redeemer of the universe is born that Christmas day. God loves to do the extraordinary through the ordinary, though. So rejoice in the ordinary. Life doesn't have to be extraordinary. Rejoice in the ordinary and look for God to do the extraordinary. And look for God's fingerprints and movements in the ordinary. Because that's where he loves to show up and accomplish his work. Now the next lesson's even worse than that one. Here's this one. Good news is always preceded by bad news. Look, I didn't make that up, I, I've read the Bible. <laughs> and good news is always preceded by bad news. That's why I spent so much time starting with the bad news. Time of the judges, famine, funeral, funeral, funeral. That's the beginning. <clears throat> That's a long list of bad news. The good news is preceded by the bad news, but the bad news makes the good news amazing news. But if we don't honestly call it bad news, and if we don't assess what it really is, we're gonna miss the good news and the glory of the good news and the awesome news. Good news is always preceded by bad news. Some of you are in the midst of some really bad news. Don't manipulate and scheme and try to get out of the bad news with your own manipulation. Find your hope and your trust in God, the one who can make good news out of bad news, and he will for us too. One last lesson. Identification is what brings transformation. It's identification. 
Isn't that what Ruth's words say in chapter one? Here's what Ruth says. I'm gonna give up my life so you can have a life, Naomi. I'll identify with you. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Your place will be my place. I'm giving up my, I'll identify with you. I give up my life for your life. Isn't that what Boaz says? Ruth, so you can have a life. I'll give up my life. And maybe the ridicule of my friends, I'll give up lots of money to purchase the property and I'll even marry you a Moabite. I'll give up, I'll give up a life so you can have a life. And isn't that the message of Christmas? Does the Ruth story sound at all familiar? Ruth leaves a place that she would call home, a place of comfort where she's accepted and known. And life is the way it should be for her. She gives all of that up and travels to a foreign place. And she risks and she sticks. And through that identification, there's transformation. That's the message of Christmas. That's why Jesus says, you can just call me Emmanuel, God with you. I'll stick with you. I identify with you. I've not only risked, I've given my life for you. Ruth, one of the signposts along the highway to Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Then you not only made promises, you continually sent reminders and echoes to the people in the Old Testament and to us, telling us that in the midst of hard times, we need to hope not by manipulating and scheming, but by looking to you, because good news is always preceded by bad news. And we need to stick with people and we need to take risks for people so that they can taste the gospel as they relate to us and do life with us. And Lord, we need to identify with people that maybe we're not really comfortable identifying with because you identified with us. And that's where transformation really happens. So Lord, as we begin this trek toward Christmas, help us to realize that Christmas begins long before December. Christmas begins thousands of years before that. Your plan is echoed through history. Lord, help us to learn some of those lessons and be sure to not miss Christmas this year and to live out those themes between now and then. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.